Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 8th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. This time next month, the government will be signing off on how it plans to spend 6.4 billion euro in budget 24. With so much money at its disposal, this year will give the government an opportunity to do great things. Yesterday, the Taoiseach said he could absolutely guarantee that one of the themes in the budget will be child well-being and child welfare. Leo Radker said there will be a package aimed at reducing child poverty and that there are different ways of doing that. One way that the Taoiseach says is worthy of consideration is to lift 40,000 children out of poverty. The ESRI is suggesting a second tier of child benefit. Unlike child benefit payments now, which are universally paid, this tier would be means tested. The cost, €700 million. Let's speak to Suzanne Rogers, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Good morning, Suzanne. Thanks for joining us as always on the programme this morning. What do you make of uh, this proposal from the ESRI? it's, It's actually part of a larger report that they've done. So it's poverty, income inequality and living standards in Ireland. And this is their third annual report. So this is something that they've been keeping an eye on for quite some time. And their emphasis then, so they have a chapter in here then about child poverty. Sure. Uh, But can I ask you about this particular proposal? What do you make of it? A a second tier of child Mm -hmm. benefit? It's interesting, all right, because, again, they have a couple of proposals here to, to tackle child poverty. And I think this one this one could be a runner because, like that, as you said, it's really important that we keep that universal payment. So that isn't being touched. I think a lot of people seem to get, think that they were calling for child benefit to be means tested. So everybody would get that, that payment. And then what you're doing, I suppose, is like a targeted universalism. You're saying, okay, let's give everybody a certain amount, make sure that they're okay, and then go back and see, okay, who needs that extra bit of assistance? Who needs that extra bit of support? Um, You know, it's it's that difference between equality and equity. People, to get to the same point, may need to be treated differently. So treating everybody the same isn't going to get everybody to the same place. Mm. So that's their proposal, then, is that second tier of child income support. And it was something that was also brought up in the Commission on Taxation and Welfare's report, I think, last year or the year before. It was something that they had looked at as well in order to be able to tackle child poverty. So 
it may be something that we do end up seeing. Okay, and who would qualify for it? Uh, how would it be means tested? They didn't really get into too much detail, but I presume that you would be looking at either uh, some sort of household income level, same mm. way that you would be accessing uh, working family payment. It might be linked to hours work. It might be linked with how many children are in the household. So I would imagine it would be linked to some sort of either household income. I wasn't really sure about that, mm. whether it would be looking at either household income or maybe the income of the person who's getting the payment. We would be also conscious here of something called maybe in-house poverty. Mm. So just because there's money in the household doesn't always mean that it's being distributed equally or fairly between you know adult members of the household and that the children are being looked after. So I, I'm not too sure whether they would end up means testing. Maybe the, the payment is usually given to the mother. It might be means testing her income or it might be a means testing the household income. Okay. But I would imagine that that's what they would look at. Uh, and they're saying it would take 40,000 children out of poverty. Mm-hmm. I, I, I take it it would help. Uh, the 170,000 uh, people who live in poverty, adults and uh, children uh, for that matter. That's a really key point. Children don't live in poverty in isolation. It's not, as I keep saying, it's not like the adults have their act together and the kid just can't manage its money. Um, these are households in poverty, but the statistics really show that it's the same types of households where children are living in poverty. Mm. So it's the lone parent. Childcare is such a key thing there to try and be able to get access to employment. And they were saying as well that um, children maybe where there's a disability in the household as well, they will be at risk of poverty and where there's low low work intensity in a household as well, there will be poverty there. So it is, it's going to make such a difference. And I think the thing with child poverty as well is that it lasts a lifetime. Mm. The damage is, is, is really long lasting. So if we're going to tackle um, poverty, I think this is the key really is, is to get children well, to get their household stable. Housing, again, huge conversation about that when you talk about child poverty. Every month we're getting record figures of homelessness, three and a half thousand children in in emergency accommodation. We know the developmental issues that happen with these children, you know, children who aren't able to crawl because they've no space, they can't be weaned because they've no cooking facilities. But we don't really know maybe yet that the long term impact that that's going to have, like these children when they become adults. Um, you know, society hasn't really reached out and said, OK, we will look after you. They are being housed, but it's emergency accommodation. Some of them are there for a very long time. Mm. I'm sure that's uh, the case. Um, but where should the cutoff point be uh, in terms of mean testing? I mean, it's always a, a very difficult thing. And I imagine you'd need to have a, a fairly high cutoff point so that you don't deprive people and make it unfair. I mean, if you were to set it at 20 or 25,000 a year, well, you'd be in trouble if you're wearing 25,000 and one euro a year. This is always the conversation when it comes to your, uh, to any kind of welfare support or any kind of means tested support. And what we've seen really in the last two years is exactly that. Households where they're earning slightly too much to be able to access social welfare support but that their bills have just gone crazy. So they they really are struggling. Um, I, I don't know. It might be interesting to see whether, I mean, at the moment, social welfare generally is set really far below what the poverty rate is. Mm. So at the moment in Ireland for 2023, 
um, if you take into account maybe kind of average wage increases, poverty level is set at 60% of median income, which for 2023, according to our figures, would be €318 a week. And yet social welfare comes nowhere near that. Mm. So it would be interesting to see what kind of a poverty reduction that they're looking for. So are you actually going to bring people up to a level where you would eradicate poverty? There is a commitment by government in the Sustainable Development Goals to have zero poverty by 2030. Hmm. And we have a commitment in the Roadmap for Social Inclusion to reduce consistent poverty to 2%. So I would imagine welfare is going to have to do a lot of that heavy lifting. Okay, why not just have one tier of child benefit? And quite a high threshold, 100,000 or 150,000. You said at the very beginning you'd like to see the universal payment continue. Uh, A lot of people would like to or would prefer to throw a pie in the face of Michael O'Leary than pay child benefit to him, if you know what I mean. Uh, Some people would say, why have we paid... uh, child benefit to very wealthy people, uh, whether it's beef barons or or Ryan Tuberty and the like. Yeah, I mean, this is always the, you know, this is always the conversation when we look at those universal payments. The the high earners in this country do actually form a very small percentage of our population. It will cost money to means test a universal payment, so you would have to factor that in, uh, what, you know, what the payoff would be. This is a payment that you can opt out of. You don't automatically get child benefit. You do have to register for it. So high-income households can actually decide, you know what, we don't need this. But really, like it's for the children. It is being spent on children. And I think if we are to, to, to look after all of our children and if we are to have this kind of, you know, nobody being left behind sort of ethos and that all our children are equal, that would be really key. And again, I'm conscious of that in-house poverty piece as well. There may well be households that have high income, but not every individual in it may have access to that income. So we fought mm. long and hard for these payments to be given to women and I think as well with the universal aspect of it that doesn't have any work disincentive attached to it like when you look at other kind of means tested payments the conversation is always about well if I go to work I'm going to lose this if I have if my only options are low paid or precarious work is it worth it so at least with the universal payment it's locked in and I think as well as it's also harder for government to roll back on a universal payment than it is on something that's means tested Alright this uh, second tier of uh, child benefit is a, a suggestion from uh, the ESRI Social Justice Ireland has been making its own suggestions uh, about ending child poverty through education health uh, measures that would be taken for children in rural Ireland work in the national minimum age and income in general, increasing core social welfare rates. Yes, so we had our own publication at the start of the week and again looking at the issue of child poverty and that if the Department of Taoiseach's new child poverty and wellbeing programme office is really going to deliver on this and to quote the Taoiseach, what he wants is to make Ireland the best country in Europe to be a child, it's going to have to be increasing the household income, but also looking at education, looking at health. We can see the headlines, children waiting for assessments, children waiting for mental health supports. I think that's really the key. As you said, we have lots of money here to play around with. We're looking at children in homeless accommodation. We're looking at the damage being done to children in direct provision. So housing is going to be really key if you are safe and secure in your home and your parents can afford the subsidised rent on a low income. That would go a long, long way, long way then again to making sure that your health is better, <clears throat> your educational outcomes are better. Mm. 
we were looking at the DESH schools, <coughs> excuse me, and the pupil-teacher ratios and stuff like that. So there's a lot that can be done as well as raising incomes. Okay. Would you have much confidence in this government's ability to deliver on housing? Uh, some would say they've had long enough and failed miserably. It's, it's funny. I mean, I'm reading these series of books that are about Dublin housing and the history of Dublin housing. And, there's, you know, the conversation in 1890 is... Do we build flats or do we build houses? Do we build in the suburbs? Do we build in the city? Do we, you know, do we charge subsidised rent? And if we do, who pays the difference? This is the same conversation we've been having for 150 odd years. <clears throat> so I do agree. That mm. We have long enough. We've had long enough to figure this out. Yeah, I'd feel um, they might have done better in 1890 than they're doing in 2023. They did. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Like, but you know, when you look mm. at especially Dublin housing, so it's like Marino and, and Crumlin and all of this. You look at the congested districts board. <clears throat> we absolutely did, and we had no money at the time. We, you know, our concept of housing has shifted so dramatically. It's global finance yeah. now has its finger in the pie. It does. It does muddy the waters. All right. I mean, we. You know, where, where I am now, and I'm in a Dublin suburb. There's a lot of building going on around me. But what type of building? So it's a really, it's a multifaceted conversation. But I agree. Like decisions that were made. 30, 40 years ago about social housing have landed us where we are now, that pulling away from providing social housing and that over-reliance on the private market. Um, I do appreciate that building a house takes time, but it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take 10 years. So they have a commitment there, but, I mean, the situation is getting actually worse and worse, yeah. and it's impacting on business. At the SRI launch yesterday, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, there was uh, IBEC were there, and, like, from a business point of view, you need, if, you know, you need your government to provide housing, health, education. Otherwise, you don't have a workforce that can afford to take up jobs. And, you know, again, we hear that a lot. Like there's schools that can't get teachers. Now, that's not for a lack of teachers. We can't get GPs. That's not for a lack of GPs. That's for a lack of affordable housing in the places where those jobs are. And again, that impacts then on, on children. Mm. So, you know, the housing thing... Um, I mean, we, we we could be here now till Christmas, quite happily talking about housing. Yeah. But yeah. again, we'll hopefully we'll see that can, kind of continued commitment towards real, real affordable, real social housing for yeah. for everybody to be able to you know, get a, a solid roof over their head. OK, well, just a, a little over a month uh, to the budget being announced. Mm-hmm. We leave it there for the moment. Suzanne, thank you indeed for joining us today. Suzanne Rogers, uh, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Some comments coming to us. Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch saying, Fine Gael can feel the breath of Sinn Féin on the back of their necks, but don't be fooled. They will never acquire a social conscience. Their ideology doesn't allow for that. They're a right-wing party, just like the British Conservative Party. Thanks, Paddy. Uh, maybe a member of that party texting us <laughs> the text from somebody who says, tell that woman, Suzanne Rogers, uh, communism is great in theory, but unfortunately it uh, doesn't work in practice. Handouts generally don't work. Teach people that you have to work to earn a decent lifestyle. Thank you indeed. Thanks to Stella 
Stella, if you're listening, thank you very much for your email. Stella is 82 years of age. She says in her email, Michael, I'm a very active 82-year-old who never misses your excellent show. However, I was deeply disturbed to hear you give a platform on your Thursday show to a weirdo crank in order to let him express his violent, insulting views on older car drivers. At this sad time, when so many people are dying on our roads, you allowed this wacko to tell careful drivers to get out of his way because we are annoying him. Oh, Lord, help him. From Stella, 60 proud years of driving without an accident. Well, thank you indeed for your email, Stella. Thanks uh, to... Um, uh, to um, sorry, I've lo- I have this printed off without the name. I'll come back with the name as soon as I can, but it's a very uh, interesting email. Hi, Michael. We've had uh, the wettest July on record, and by some pure miracle, it looks like we are going to have a, a gorgeous weekend. So I, I did what any sensible, sane person would do in the circumstances, and I booked tomorrow off work and was planning on spending the whole weekend blowing the cobwebs off the barbecue. Driving home, I was getting into holiday mood until I came off the Castle Blaney exit off the M1, heading towards Hackball's Cross and got the whiff of chicken slurry. Sweet Jesus, the one nice weekend we have had in over a month and some bloody farmer decides to spread chicken slurry. Surely be to God they could have done it earlier in the week so that they wouldn't ruin everyone's weekend. It's easy knowing that they don't live near the area that they spread the slurry. Before any farmer rings in and says, I don't understand, well, I do. As I come from a farming background and never once in over 30 years did my father spread slurry on a weekend where there was the rare spot of good weather as he knew kids would be outside with their families. Why isn't there any rule that states slurry has to be injected into the ground straight away or at least have a bit of consideration for people living in the area if you don't live there yourself? Anyway, I'm off to sell my barbecue on Dundee as it looks like it'll never get any use. Seriously though, would you ask farmers to have a bit of consideration for those who work all week and need the weekend to just relax outside? We work just as hard as they do. Please don't read out my name as I don't want all the farmers in Louth dumping slurry on my doorstep. Okay, I don't need to get the name. Now I remember why I didn't print the name off. Thank you indeed. Uh, I'm sure that the farmers wouldn't do that, but thank you indeed uh, for your email. Our email address is michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Irish dairy farmers are, are going to have uh, to reduce nitrate. This means reducing uh, the amount of uh, cattle that they farm by as much as 15%. Uh, there's no way out of this, the Minister for Agriculture told farm organisations yesterday. The European Commission has gone as far as it will with a derogation that Ireland has had since 1991, uh, which is subject to certain conditions. But there is concern about uh, the pollution of surface waters, which is saying that derogation being reduced by 2026. Having said that, the European Commission is now saying that some areas are, are going to have to start reducing from the 1st of January next year. This is being criticised uh, across the board by farming organisations who are not not happy with how the government has uh, performed uh, and indeed not happy with how Charlie McConnell, the minister, has performed. And it is clear 
that Fine Gael politicians are not happy with how the Fianna Fáil minister has performed. Uh, there's a long list of Fine Gael politicians who are unhappy uh, about the performance of uh, the minister in relation to this, according to an article in the Irish Independent this morning. One of those uh, politicians named is Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey, who tweeted can't believe the best Minister McConnell could manage was a virtual meeting with the Commissioner, which clearly didn't work. Colin Markey is on the line and uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, you don't really rate the performance of Minister McConnell Well, I'm very disappointed what has happened this week. Like, the reality is the Minister had a, what would appear like a rushed online meeting. A, at the same time, when he came out with his announcement, the members of the Agriculture Committee, including members of his own party, were on their way to Brussels to meet the Commissioner. I myself have a meeting set up for the Commissioner for Tuesday. And like, I think the point about these meetings and what people were trying to achieve was to make the point that there's a better way and another way this can be done. Should Everybody Charlie McConnell have approached it differently? Should he have gone to Brussels? Well, I, I would think the first thing you do if you're uh, dealing with a serious issue, you certainly meet someone face-to-face on the, on the matter. And also, I think he should have allowed the representatives from the Agriculture Committee from the Dáil to go over and allow them make their case in terms of what their concerns were. And equally, from my own perspective, I wanted to have my own discussions with the Commissioner on Tuesday as mm. regards it. The reality is, if you talk to anyone within agriculture, they believe there's a better way this can be approached. There's yeah. a range of measures that can be taken at farm level mm. that will have a meaningful difference to water quality. We, most farmers genuinely believe that the reduction in the nitrates directive will not go anywhere to improving water quality. That the measures that were proposed, and uh, there was 31 measures under a nitrates action plan that have only begun to be rolled out and won't, haven't been given time to take effect. And there's other things that farmers would propose to do that, that actually could make a real difference. And if I can say, what's really annoying me about this is this, this whole conversation over the last couple of months has started a very serious conversation within the agriculture uh, sector, in dairy and in other sectors as well, about how we take responsibility for improving the situation within the, the sector. Mm. And it meant the farmers, if you like, were being serious yeah. about what... what, what I know, but the European, Commission, the European Commission is being serious. Did you not hear what the minister said? Uh, they've made it clear that Ireland already has the most flexibility in the EU and it's simply not possible uh, to go for it. And Ireland has some of the the best water quality in the EU. It hasn't the worst water quality in the EU by by any manner of means. And the the reality is, but Irish water quality is not getting better. Mm. So we want to to change that round. And the reality is... But you can't. Farmers want to to be part of that change. There's no doubt in the world about that. but, But it's impossible. It is possible. No, Charlie McConnell has said it's not possible. Well, so what's not possible? It's not possible to improve the water quality. Of course it's possible. No, not to improve, to, 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 to get more flexibility on this derogation. Well, it's interesting that he chose to come out with his announcement just as the Agriculture Committee were on their way to Brussels to meet the Commissioner mm. and a few days before I myself was meeting the Commissioner. Yeah. It seemed he was in a rush to get to get this out rather than to allow a conversation happen. And that's what has frustrated sure, a lot of you'd criticise him if he didn't get it out, if he, he was keeping it secret. If it's not possible, surely farmers need to know that. Well, we need to have a conversation about what... Uh, the Minister has had the conversation um, 
on behalf of your government, uh, this this is as much to do with this is as much to do with Fine Gael as it has to do with Fianna Fáil. Uh, uh, so I, I think I think your party members uh, probably would hope that you'd be cautious about uh, how critical you are of the minister because he represents Fine Gael as much as he does Fianna Fáil in a coalition of parties, uh, and the government the government has finished its negotiations with the European Union. This is the best deal possible. I don't, I, I and many others don't accept that this is the best solution to water quality. And what we want to impress on the commissioner is, there, number one, that, that if we engage farmers in a very meaningful conversation, rather than... Do you not think Charlie Connell will try to do that? Bear, bear with me for a second. If you engage in a meaningful conversation, number one, number two, then if there are other ways that this can be approached, at least if farmers feel they've got a fair crack at voicing that, Mm. then they will buy into what's there. But the sense here is this will go out ahead to avoid that conversation. And the point is, if people can put their case and accept their case wasn't accepted, maybe then they can go and do it. All right. But th- this is preempting a- 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 an opportunity for people to explain where they're coming from and propose an alternative way. If that then is not accepted, fair enough. Do you but not think that the minister has had a meaningful conversation? That conversation has ended... The conversation is over and the path forward is now clear. I think the path forward has to involve the stakeholders. It's the same as any... But any they, they are involved, are they not? They're represented by the Minister for Agriculture, surely. They're represented by by, by all the people, by the Agricultural Committee in, in, the, in Leinster House. Why was the Agricultural Committee on its way to Brussels to have this conversation and then all of a sudden this announcement comes out in advance to, to preempt that? Like, surely it's more about allowing the various voices that are there to represent have their input into Are you saying that the Minister for Agriculture doesn't represent farmers? The Minister's voice is the only voice that's heard on it. I think the other voices... That's a very strange thing to be saying. You're you're concerned that the Minister for Agriculture is the only voice representing farmers at a European level? No, I'm not saying. The other voices were were there to represent the farmers. But mm. the minister sought to preempt that by coming out with this statement, but and I think it, it was members of his own party were going over. For God's sake, it's not mm. just it's not just Fine Gaelers. It was a cross-party delegation from the agriculture. But he say he, maybe he may, maybe he's saving he them. Makes a, this announcement while they're on the plane to Brussels. It's may, maybe he's saving them a trip. Maybe they're wasting their well. They're obviously wasting their time. The negotiations have concluded. I, I mean, have you have you got a problem with how Charlie McConnell represented farmers? I have a problem with ensure my concern, my overarching concern in relation to this is about the, the water quality and the measures to which can mm. be put in place and the way And that's what this is all about. It's the, to do more about water quality. It's to do with the amount and of cattle on land because of the amount of poo that comes from cattle and that poo interferes with water quality and that's uh, why uh, farmers will have to reduce their herd by 15%. But that's the best the minister could negotiate. Surely you have to accept what the minister has said to you. I don't think uh, if, you, if you always accept what if the minister accepts what's said to him by public servants, if if we accept what what the minister says, then it's just a fait accompli. But he's your minister. Do, I mean, this so, is but, this but is a, this is a government minister. You're a member of one of the government parties. You sound like a member of the opposition. The fact is, we I think we need to bring all. Why why was members of his own party going to Brussels for, for the same for the same reason? Like the reality is. 
we need to have a robust conversation, a robust debate about what is the best things that can be done. Mm. It, the like of Chagas, for instance. Well, I don't think you'd the make these comments out. Just, just, let, me, just yeah. let me explain. For the last 10 years or almost, Chagas have been running this water catchment program with six catchments across the country where they're sampling the water every 10 minutes. Mm. That's the type of research and, and, and knowledge that's out there that we want to be used yeah. to, to identify... What well, I'm sure Charlie McConnell did use it. I mean, it would have been remiss of him not to use it, would it not? And it sounds to me uh, as though the minister came to the end of the negotiating road. Uh, I mean, you're making very critical statements uh, about his performance. It's as if he didn't engage in meaningful conversation, as if he didn't uh, make these points uh, about Ireland's proud record in terms of um, uh, protecting water quality. Uh, I, I don't know if you'd make those comments if Charlie McConnellog was a, a Fine Gael minister. I don't think it's anything to do with the politics of the government at all. I think it's about, yeah, to me, we can make this about a political football or we can make it about their, their water quality, which is ultimately about... I think the more people that get engaged and more people that are involved in, in a whole debate around improving water quality, be it the farmers themselves, be it the, the MEPs or the, member, the TDs, the more people that are in, and the longer that, that debate goes on, the more we'll get outcomes that more people will be involved in the solutions. And to preempt that at this stage, just when it was beginning to get into a, a meaningful conversation that, that had the if you like, the TDs involved, the MEPs involved, the farm organisations, the farmers on the ground, we're all beginning to say, right, it's a serious thing. Now, we have to, we have to, well, we've always said it was a serious thing, but we, they, they're, they're, they're doubling down in terms of the focus about addressing this issue. And then to come out in, with a unilateral position at that point, I don't think is helping the broader debate as to how we move this forward and get real answers and real results. Okay. Because that that that's the that's the frustration that I'm expressing this morning. Okay. I think that's the frustration that's been expressed by many people in the industry. All right. Well, we'll be speaking with the IFA later, and we'll ask them if uh, they're upset with how the minister has performed, or if uh, they attributed it to the performance of the three parties in government. Thank you indeed for joining us on the program today, Finnegan MEP Colin Markey. Uh, going back uh, to the email uh, that we read out uh, about the barbecue and uh, how <laughs> it's going for sale on Dundee uh, because of the slurry. Uh, somebody else uh, has been in touch texting us this morning saying, is that lad putting any chicken on the barbecue? Uh, Mary says, I thought farmers were supposed to put something in the slurry to stop it from smelling. It's disgusting. Uh P.S. Don't tell me it is a lovely country smell. It's not, says Mary. Thank you for your text, Mary. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's a great story about Eleanor Smith, but little Eleanor doesn't even understand what the story is about. I hope somebody's recording this so that they can play it for Eleanor when she's 21 or something like that, because Eleanor Smith is just a little baby. At four and a half months of age, she doesn't realise that she'll be flying out tonight in the early hours of tomorrow morning, but much to the relief of the rest of her family. Her dad, Aaron, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Aaron, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're getting away, I believe, uh, but it was a close call. Very close call, Michael. Um, basically, I wanted to thank everybody 
everybody involved, somebody knew somebody who might be able to help. And this has been kind of going on for the last 11 days or more. Um, seemingly the passport office have been inundated with applications over the last couple of months. And to nobody's fault, uh, it's just the system at the moment. Uh, we put in the application. It's probably just a word of warning to any parent that with a new infant, it's a much different process uh, than a normal. If you lose your passport or you have to renew your passport, yeah, you could probably get it within 24 hours. Right. But with an infant, it's a much longer, uh, when she's just getting her first passport. It's a right, much and Eleanor is four and a half and months old, so this obviously is that, her Even first. though we sent it in in June, we thought we'd have it in a couple of weeks. And as the day got nearer and nearer, we started ringing and saying, oh, my, and, and we were in the process, or we were in the system, let's call it. <clears throat> but with 11 days to go, we said, uh-oh, there's something to miss here. Mm. And that's why we contacted the likes of your, yourself, and especially the likes of Karen and all the secretaries and all the different bodies and parties that we contacted, only for the secretaries who, not to be condescending, mm. uh, did their job so well and were so compassionate to us. Um, because, look, at everybody goes away on holidays. It's the first holiday in five years. It's a family holiday. We wanted to bring baby Eleanor with us, and it would have been a disaster if the mama baby had to probably stay at home. You know, yeah, yeah well, Eleanor is just four and a half months, so this is our first holiday. Our first. To see, could you help out? I, I, so, brilliant. Yeah. We're going on holidays. Can, can you hear me there, Aaron? Hello? Yeah, there's obviously a problem on the line. Aaron can't hear what I'm saying. Uh, but uh, we got the gist of it, uh, I think. And, uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Aaron. We'll have to leave it there uh, because there's some glitch in our phone line system. I'm terribly sorry about that. It was a great story. It is a great story. Little four-and-a-half-month-old Eleanor Smith is going away with dad, ma'am, and uh, her three siblings. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we should... Give some credit as well to Alison in Helen McEntee's office. Uh, the minister's assistant uh, was working on this, I believe, over the last few weeks. I spoke to Aaron yesterday around lunchtime and there was no hope of getting a passport at that stage. So that's just completely turned on its head and they fly out tonight. So fantastic. All right. Uh, good news Friday. Uh, here's uh, an email now that has uh, come to us overnight about uh, speed limits. Hi, Michael. Every estate should be 30 kilometres an hour. This is according to Liam Healy who's been emailing. He says here in Dunleer only older established estates have 30 kilometres an hour newer estates are 50. The council will only allow states taken in charge to have a 30 kilometre uh, speed limit and they have no interest in taking in charge the newer states. It's ridiculous. We've speed signs with 30k on one side and 50 on the other. It's the newer states that have all the young kids running around in them. I think that probably is very true, Liam. Thank you indeed for your email to michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will launch uh, the annual report for the refuge, uh, for a bigger pardon, for the Mead uh, Women's Refuge and Support Service uh, later on uh, this morning. It's uh, been the busiest year on record for the organisation. Paula McNulty is uh, the Refuge and Helpline team leader with uh, Meath Women's Refuge and Support Service and on the line. Good morning, Paula. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You, you've seen an 11% uh, increase in demand. What does that mean? Um, thanks. Um, yeah, no, we've had, as you mentioned, we've had the busiest year here in Meath Women's Refuge. 
Um, we supported 539 women, 131 children in 2022. Um, and we've ha- supported the highest number um, of people here in our refuge accommodation as well. We've, um, we've seen uh, more and more survivors of domestic violence coming forward for support. Um, and I suppose it's it's really, it reflects that, uh, you know, in society really we're seeing that change, that um, uh, violence and that coercive control and uh, that that experience that women and children have in the home is no longer acceptable and people are reaching out which is a great thing and they're looking for support um, because we always believe it, believed it was there but just people some, you know, didn't feel comfortable and didn't feel supported to come out so right. mm. um, That's an yeah. awful lot of women and children 539 women 131 children who you've provided accommodation to it's a, an increase of well, it's, a, a, Well, it wouldn't be, I'm sorry there, no, it wouldn't be, we didn't provide the accommodation to that we supported. We're not just, um, we're not just uh, um, accommodations, we're in the courts as well and we're, we support children, we have a community team that um, support children who are still in the community to help them process the recovery. But we have, it was 54 women and 76 children, I believe, that we supported in our refuge last year in no. 2022. Okay, but, um, yeah. Okay, that's um, a, a different story uh, and uh, really small numbers uh, in comparison to the amount of women who sought refuge uh, because you've had to turn 300 women away with their children, 184 children. That's it, yeah. No, we have, and um, I suppose that, like we would hope to expand our services over the next few years to to be able to support everyone that calls their service, but in reality, that's not that's not what we're able to do at the moment. And we do have to, um, you know, when we are full, we have to turn people away. But we don't we don't leave them with with no support. We call other refuges in Dublin or in Kildare or around, you know, locally yeah. to try and get them some safe accommodation, or we give them the numbers so they can call in their own time when they're when they're safe and when it's free when they're free to do that as okay. well. Uh, apologies um, for my confusion on, on the stats, but that, that, that's a, an incredible um, a, a amount of people who are seeking emergency accommodation uh, because uh, the total tally is in excess of three hundred and fifty women and over two. 200 children with them, I take it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a really high number and we would hope that, um, you know, we, we would hope that that would change over the years as well. You know, we're, we're um, the government strategy, the zero tolerance plan that was launched last year, um, they're looking at you know, the proactive measures there and education and, um, you know, educating people about it. So it's, and they're looking at, you know, changes in the laws and, Hopefully, we'll see over time that the demand for refuge will will won't be as much. But mm. in the meantime, we really need it, um, and we're hoping. You know, we're far under the numbers of refuge spaces that is required uh, nationally and in Meath as well. So um, the people that we turn away is reflective of that. Um, but you know, we're hoping to build a new refuge in 2025 here, a 12-unit mm. refuge, and we're hoping that that you know that will help towards towards reducing those numbers as right. well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and there is a commitment to funding that unit, is there? There is, yeah. No, we've, um, our CEO, Sinead, has been working really closely with the Department of Justice and the Department of Housing to, to put that in place. So um, we're, all, we're all very hopeful here that that will be up and running by 2025. Um, we have a, a team here of staff that have been here for, some staff members have been here for almost 30 years and they've seen the changes over the years and mm. 
you know, we're, we're feeling very positive about, you know, this being taken seriously and, um, you know, seeing seeing good accommodation coming in for, for women and children in this situation for people of need. Well, it's been um, your busiest year. Uh, tell me about uh, the changes over the 30 years, because I take it it gets busier every year. Is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? And what I mean by that, is it that more women are, are falling victim to domestic violence or is it that more women are doing something about it, uh, that they're acting to protect themselves and their children? Was, we believe that it was always there and it was always a problem, but just that that there it's more in the media. You know, it's it, we can see on social media, we can see in the media now that this isn't acceptable. And um, I know during COVID we could hear from, from the Gardaí about the numbers, you know, the amount of people that were experiencing domestic violence. So I think women and children, I think they feel they're not on their own anymore and that that this isn't acceptable. And I think that's one of the, the reasons that we see more, more and more people reaching out we have a lot. If we, if you look at our, our annual report for for this year, it's you know a lot a lot of women who have who are pregnant or who have young children. You know, it's that younger cohort that's coming in and they're they're accessing our service mm. uh, services. So, um, yeah. I- this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you. Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. That's you know over the thirty years, I think that there wasn't you know the it wasn't a course of control has become a crime since twenty eighteen. That you know we've seen a lot of positive changes over the past two years, mm-hmm. um, where where uh, you know uh, we've we have changed. We're 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 we've got more um, core funding from Tuscal, and we're hoping to expand that over the years so we can meet this demand and we can make sure that there's you know any woman and child in need that need our support that we're there and we can help them um and that there's no there's no one that that we have to say look we have no refuge today you know we will we'll yeah. help you look somewhere else we're hoping that we can say you know come in 
we're here, um, you know, and help mm. them make them arrangements to come in. Okay, and um, with that increase in state funding, your services are, are growing and developing, and you're, you're launching a, a new service today, a new free phone helpline. That's it. We're very excited about it as well. It's just to reduce any barriers that people have, um, you know, for family members, for friends, or for people themselves who are experiencing domestic violence. We have a free phone number. It's one eight hundred four six four six four six. And we were sponsored by Bank of Ireland and from the Begin Together Fund, and they were able to help us launch this. And with the cost of living, you know, everyone ex- has experienced, um, you know, financial constraints from that. So we're hoping that this free phone helpline will reduce any barrier that anyone has um, to call in and asking about our service, asking about our court service, our children's service, our refuge, um, our counselling as well. You know, we've we've a whole range of services there that you know people can call. We're we're here 24-7, um, we, we don't take a break, we're here Christmas, we're here overnight, any, any support that people need, you know, if they feel they're in a situation like this and mm. they really need to get out, we're here, we're here to support people. When you talk about barriers to calling, are people slow to call? Uh, is there a reason for that if that is uh, the case? Is it stigma? Is it shame? Is it embarrassment? Yeah, it would be all of those all of those reasons. And as well, you know, sometimes people don't have access to a phone and they mightn't have credit. It might be part of that course of control where you're in financial control where they don't have credit on the phone. So we're hoping that this free phone number that they can call from anywhere. Um, and, you know, sometimes the only time people get a chance to call is maybe if they're at work or if they're dropping their kids to school. We've had cases of people calling in cars, whispering in bathrooms, you know, calling from sheds, various places. So mm. it's reduce any barriers that people may have for calling our, our service. Mm. We still have our 046 number. It's still there. It's 046 Um We still have that number. It's still up and running, but it's just a free phone number for we're hoping that mm. any barriers, just that, that, you know, financial reasons or that course of control around the phone, um, that you know that it eliminates that. Yeah. We have the free phone number. When yeah, you talk time. about women uh, calling from cars or um, out of sight uh, uh, um, from uh, whoever is uh, the perpetrator of uh, this abuse, uh, I mean, you're painting an impression of uh, people who are being terrorised, who are in fear, in fear for their own lives and the lives of their children or well-being, as the case may be, if it's not for their lives, uh, yeah. and they're in very, very serious circumstances. Do you find people who uh, feel that they shouldn't be calling you, that uh, you might think that they're stupid uh, for calling you yeah. because, you know, they're um, a little bit concerned about the behaviour of their partner, but it's nothing on that extent. Yeah, yeah. Look, at we get that all the time. We get people saying, you know, it's not that bad. You know, physically, he's not hurting me. But coercive control, we've heard, we've, I had a woman here um, with two children and she physically had, you know, was beaten up, but she and we hear it time and time again it's that course of control it's that emotional abuse it's that shame it's that um you know it, telling them that they're they're not worth anything it's that piece that's the most difficult that causes mm. you cannot see those scars but um and it, 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 we hear women saying you know I'm, I'm not afraid he's going to kill me or i'm not afraid he's going to hit me but this is what's happening and they're they're really in turmoil over us so any call any any question, any relationship where people are seeing, you know, or have that feeling like, oh, you know, especially for new relationships that, you know, something doesn't feel right. We would encourage them to call us mm. um, to reach out um, because you don't you don't need it to escalate. You need, you know, you need support. And it's um, 
and it, there's a lot of that crazy making and they call it gaslighting as well it's like you know that it's some way your fault you know mm. it's it's good to reach out and to to talk to someone and to kind of get that support that it's you know that it's not you um and and um it's it's a very complex it's piece and of we've heard it, it all here mm. and yeah. it differs from person to person i think uh, to simplify yeah. it um the good news if you like is that the majority of people don't encounter abuse on uh, this scale uh, and for the major- minority of uh, women who, who are in abusive relationships uh, they need to know that they don't need to put up with it but the really good news is that there is help uh, in all of the ways through all of the services that you provide uh, and it is worthwhile making a, a phone call or making contact through the internet as the case may be. That's it, yeah. No, we're we're here, as I mentioned, 24-7. Our free phone number is 1-800-46-4646. And we have a team of people here who, um, you know, uh, many of us have been working here for many years. So um, we have, you know, any question it's not or any concern, it's not, nothing is too small, nothing is too big. We're, you know, we're here to, to listen. Um, and, yeah, um, like we just encourage everyone. And it, it's... It, um, I suppose it's, you know, one in four women experience domestic violence throughout their lives. So it's not, you're not alone. Um, and it, it's not, it doesn't mean that this is going to be your whole life. It's just a part of it. And, you know, you can come through it. And we've, we've had people, women coming back here. We're here well over 30 years. And we've had women coming back and saying, you know, how much their life has changed for the better. They're out the other end. They've have, they have a new perspective on things, even though it's difficult now, you know, there's always that hope for the future. Okay. Um, so, All right. Yeah. Well, you launch your annual report today with Minister McEntee. People can make contact with you on the free phone helpline 1-800-464646. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Paula. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Paula you. McNulty, uh, the Refuge and Helpline team leader with Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's a concern in uh, the Money Moore housing estate in uh, Drogheda, uh, another attack on a house, uh, another fire, uh, and some questions uh, being asked as to what the motivation for the attack was. Let's speak to Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster, who's on the line. Good morning, Imelda. Thanks uh, for joining us. On. Am, I, am I right in thinking this wasn't the first time that this particular house was attacked? No, um, you're right there. It. This particular house was targeted four times, um, and each time after it was targeted, the the owner would try and do, you know, put the house right again, and then it would be attacked again. But there seems to have been some sort of connection or um, link to uh, a pipe bomb attack on a house outside of Drogheda recently. There appears to be some sort of connection there but there was also another house targeted separately the night before last and sadly it's all too familiar with us to us at this stage Mm. but it's it's the fear and the impact it has on the neighbors and the community living in fear and apprehension you know smoke damage done to their homes and then the worry of whether it's going to happen again Mm. whether their house will be mistaken you know and we've we've all lived through this before Hmm. We don't know the motivation for this, but uh, uh, I no. can uh, put two and two, two together and guess what people are thinking or what they're worried about. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that, that's it. I mean, you hear different things on the ground, but, you know, unless you can prove that it's actual factual, but um, you've I've been in touch with the guards too and their ongoing investigations. But, I mean, you know, it's it always brings me back when you see this sort of thing kicking off again. And it is, you know, the Guardian had done a great, great work during the feud, you know, the arrests and putting criminals behind bars and they had to deal with horrific cases and it's fair to say that dismantled the two major gangs but it's also vital that they keep on top of this now that, um, because this is exactly how things started before. Initially those um, smaller scale of um, intimidation and violence and attacks that wasn't initially tackled let's be honest about that and it eventually led to the full-blown feud, and we never want to go back to that. Mm. Uh, a second house on Wednesday also uh, attacked, uh, was that the one in Lawrence's Park? We'd uh, texted the programme uh, about uh, a fire in Lawrence's Park. It's, as far as I know, it mm. was, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. But mean, it's just the, you know, yeah. it's the heating up of this kind of... Yeah. Well, I, again, I, I suppose at the height of the feud we'd have had arson attacks or petrol bomb attacks every second night uh, yeah. uh, I suppose we've had similar attacks every second week every couple of weeks now yeah and that's that's the fear that you know as I said I remember being on your show Mike before you know the feud had kicked into full scale and I remember you know highlighting the fact that it, the people on the ground didn't think it was being tackled. And although it was on a smaller scale, but they were happening fairly regularly, you know, intimidation and in communities, violence, drugs, attacks. And it wasn't initially tackled. And that's the fear now that if this is starting to raise its ugly head again, that it, it be nipped in the bud and that the Gardaí be on top of it mm. constantly, you know, and to make sure. I mean, I presume that the Gardaí would know themselves the people, to be well known to the people. And the question is whether, you know, they have to prove that and whether these people don't get their own hands dirtied, dirtied and they get other youngsters to mm. do their work. And that's the question there after, you know, two years into an implementation plan for Drogheda. Well we were promised all sorts of, of great things uh, and quite a lot has happened uh, in fairness. Mm. Uh, I mean a lot of people yeah. have been arrested if they didn't shoot each other or whatever the case may be but uh, mm-hmm. what is the situation in Drogheda now do you think? Do you think that the drug problem is any greater or less than it was let's say three years ago? Well the, the main gangs are gone that's the first instance. Uh, first thing to say. The drugs seen, no I think it's it's maybe not as on such a high scale as it was before. And there certainly so far there hasn't been, you know, it hasn't stepped back into all of that sort of thing. But this is the fear that these initial attacks at the start of it and people get away with it, mm. that um, this, you know, and if it's not tackled head on, that it grows into a bigger thing and that the youth that are being used to carry out these attacks don't see any other way out or mm. life for themselves. And some and of those kids are very young, aren't they? 11 and 12 years yeah, of age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you think there's more drugs in Drogheda or less drugs in Drogheda than, let's say, there was three years ago? 
I don't honestly know, to be honest. Right, the guards okay. would be the ones to want to mm. tell you that. You know, um, you've no, I, I would have no way of gauging, but there's certainly, mm. it certainly is prevalent. You know, whether there's more or less, I don't know, but drugs are about in every community, you know, mm. and through all walks of life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, less violence, uh, less attacks, less uh, arrests. Uh, but uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the Drought Implementation Board. Have you seen much change in other respects? Well, there, there has been some good done in relation to different, you know, uh, drugs treatment court liaison case worker, the prison link, LMETB, I think have been excel themselves in relation to the apprenticeship, the electrical apprenticeship um, course that they've run, run. But that's that has minimum entry requirements, if you like, that many of the youth that, you know, was initially were the, the ones targeted to reach out to in the Gearing report and that um, there's requirements there that many of them don't reach, you know, and I always said there should be more apprenticeships. There can't, can't be enough of apprenticeships out there, whether it's white goods, carpentry, all that sort of thing. Because the the youth that we're talking about are young men primarily that leave school early. Mm. And the majority of them who fell into drugs and then some of them crime during the few, they are those young men that leave school early. And their actions impacted on their families' lives. You know, I dealt with that first on as dealers target them to pay off drugs. But the Gearan report it also flagged up that Drogheda has a higher unemployment rate than nationally. Yeah. And that that was one of the factors. And low employment prospects and poverty were the drivers. Now, the question is, has that been tackled in the last two years? I would say no, because mm. there was no major job announcements. LMETB, as I said, have provided that electrical apprenticeship course. But where else is there... You know, what else is there for for the youth? And just one example that came to my head this morning. Back in June, I think it was, of this year, there was two men, a couple, who were attacked on the Watery Hill steps. And that's almost full two years into the implementation board being in place. But they had asked, they had contacted me and other reps, I'm sure, and asked the question, and, and it was a pertinent question, what drove those young men who attacked them to such hate and the violence that they endured. And they also asked, why is there in the town that could offer those young men better prospects? Well, I saw the the video. Did did anybody, I mean, I I don't know them, but if I I, uh, put some thought into it, I'm sure I could easily identify them by going around asking a couple of people in the area, who's that fella and who's that fella? Did anybody, did anybody reach out to those kids? Not that, not that I know of. You Should know, they? But that's, Should I mean, they? Or, or, or are they just thugs? Do we forget about no, them? No, but that, you know, isn't that the whole thing? Do we give thing? up on them? Yeah, isn't that the task that was set about to reach out to those people? And I think, in fairness, the success of the implementation board, of the, the success of the Gearing Report should be judged yeah. on whether it reached out to those very young people yeah. and whether they... they their, their lives were changed in a positive way or the, their lives changed in a positive direction, yeah. you know, put in a positive, and their communities. Yeah. And is the answer to that yes? Honestly, I can't say what has changed for those youths. And I would know plenty. And you, you see them about, and there's a lot of them, you know, as I said, have left school early and they're just 
either on bikes, cycling around the town with the hoods up and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm mm. not saying that for a minute. But they're aimless, if mm. you like. There's nothing. And the and success uh, of the, yeah. the board should be judged on whether it's impacted those people's lives. And a lot, of, of, a lot of money is being put into sport and there's nothing wrong with that and it's great and it's oh. uh, very welcome. Uh, but does it appeal to these young people? I, I wonder, you know, if you improve the facilities in a, a hurling club or a boxing club, are those kids suddenly going to go down there uh, 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 or has anybody even reached out to them and said, would you not think about joining the club? Uh, would you not think about doing mm. this on the weekend? Uh, has there been any interaction? I remember speaking to the draw the implementation board and asking if they'd spoken to any of the drug dealers in the town uh, mm. uh, which seemed to be a shocking proposal I don't know why mm. because they're part of the problem part of the discussion yeah. uh, there's uh, maybe a chance that you could have an ethical discussion with drug dealers and say why um, are you selling to under 18s or under 16s or under 14s uh, would you think about that um, is there any way we could convince you to do otherwise uh, are, are there facilities that we could make it available to young people that would be appealing to them? Not necessarily a hurling club, uh, but maybe something uh, that they could come to when they're stoned, uh, that you could sit down with them and talk to them uh, and maybe point them in a different direction. I mean, I don't think any of us were born bad. We were all born the same. and A, a lot of it is coincidental and as a, a result of the place where you were born uh, and the people who you meet uh, and the family that you come from. Yes, yeah, and in some cases, you know, you come from dysfunctional families and another thing I've always feared is that if you're living in a particular community, any community, but young teenagers, you know, sometimes if they're approached by, if you like, hard men that, you know, fellas that are seen as hard men their communities and they're asked to do something they're too scared not to do it and that's the slippery slope they go down into then they're fear, fearful you know that they'll be targeted if mm. they don't do what's after them and that's where to me the implementation board and I know there's wonderful um, social you know mm. bodies set up to, do, to engage and they're doing brilliant work throughout the town Um community activities, engagement with youth, all of that. But the board itself, whether or not it ever went out, as you say, into those, reached out to those very people who don't normally engage because they feel there's nothing to offer or they feel like outsiders. They feel that nobody wants to know or they feel that they've gone down this road and there's no other option there for them. That's the very people, because how do you change it? How do you change that generation Unless you let, you not do it from behind a desk. Let me put it that way. It won't be done from behind a desk. And it won't be done just, you know, directing different groups to funding. All that's important. But if you don't have the proper engagement and reach those very people that feel like they're, they're outcasts or that feel like, you know, society is nothing other than the way of life and may, perhaps they don't get any guidance mm. at home or anything like that. Like, they're lost souls in many ways. No, they are, they are outcasts. That, they are outcasts if you don't reach out yeah. and uh, yeah, they feel yeah, like outcasts, yeah. then that's exactly what they are. Yeah, and I would have thought that that would have been the first thing that would have been done, that you you reach out to the very, very people that were in the thick of the feud, you know, or involved in it, whether there were youngsters that were, you know, buying a bit of 
small personal drugs or whatever and then they were given more to sell and then I've seen it I've many a family in you know in my office that their home was attacked because the dealers would then send other youngsters out to attack the home because they said their son owed them 5,000 and the son would say not in a million years you know they they used to just up the price like yeah. and use violence and intimidation as a way and many mothers were borrowing from everywhere to pay that for fear and many fled their homes and mm. all of that but if you don't get into that then how can your success be judged yeah. if it's only just you know and you just wonder I don't know and, and I'm sure everyone there is to you know trying their best but if you don't get in get down on the ground into the nitty gritty reach out to those people ask them what they think you know, their lives are missing, what supports, what help they need. And I know there's groups doing, but going by what's happening now at the moment, and I've been told that there are dozens upon dozens of youngsters in different estates that are running, doing the, you know, little attacks or bits of intimidation. Those are the youngsters, that they are the youngsters that need to be approached and rescued. Otherwise... Where are we in another 10 years? Well, potentially the next generation of Mm. those gangs that terrorise this town. And uh, we have asked uh, the Minister Helen McEntee if she'd like uh, to debate the success or otherwise of uh, the Implementation Board with opposition TDs such as uh, yourself. We asked that in July. That request has gone back into the Minister this morning and we hope that it's something that will happen, particularly in light of how the Minister has decided to wind down the implementation board in September of next year. But we leave it there for the moment, Amelda. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thank you. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Loud the Melda Monster. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, RTE is in a lot of uh, trouble. So far uh, this year, uh, the amount of people who have not bought a television or renewed a television licence is uh, one of uh, the big worries. They reckon that by the end of uh, the year this will result in a loss of €21 and uh, that for the institution to survive it'll need a bailout in the region of €55 euro. Let's speak uh, to Kieran Malouli once again. Kieran, as I'm sure you know, is a former RTE Midlands correspondent. Good morning Kieran. thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I take it that there's little surprise in any of uh, that data, but it is really shocking nonetheless, isn't it? Yeah, good morning, Michael, and good morning to you and to your listeners. Uh, it is shocking, but I suppose we, we have been expecting this. We, we you know, we learned about uh, the way RT management were running the company uh, and the extraordinary decisions they made on key issues such as salaries for the, for the higher presenters over the course of the last two years. Remember those Oireachtas Committee hearings? Mm. There the extraordinary behaviour that was going on in, internally there. So it's no, it's no shock to staff, uh, but I have to say it's difficult for staff to listen to this when we hear again of these 10% pay increases um, for management, which were divvied out only such a short time ago. Yeah. And uh, I was, to be honest, Michael, I was a bit d- disgusted yesterday when I read the RT uh, spokesperson statement when they pointed out that, you know, a short time after this, that RT, all RT staff got a pay increase. I can tell you, talking to my colleagues in the organisation in the North East, as well as around the country yesterday, uh, that that pay increase was 3% um, in January of, of this year. And that was based 
on a very much, much lower starting base, obviously. Mm. Uh, general staff who will be being paid on average between uh, forty and, and €70,000. That's the average salary, salary in RTE. Okay. Now, uh, this, these, these extraordinary other figures. Uh, how, uh, how did you are, feel are, when are, you read about the Forbes increase of €10,000? Well, uh, in, in fairness, uh, the, the initial statement put up RTE said that she didn't get that 10% increase. Um, so I, there's some confusion about that today. Um uh, when they put it out initially, they said she didn't take the increase at that stage. Uh, I don't think Dee Forbes is the problem in this situation. I think the, the management team around her seems to be the problem. You know, we had a situation where people were approving their own salary increases and were approving, actually approving their own severance payments. We, hadn't, we learned that at the Oireachtas uh, committees as well. So extraordinary mm. behaviour for people who we had trusted with television licence fees. And extraordinary decisions were being made. And uh, at the same time, Michael key issues for the service to the public were being affected and that's the really that's the strong issue that I have I have been speaking yeah. about all of these times including on your own show and let's talk about the services because the last time I spoke to you Kieran, we were talking about Fiona Mitchell nipping into toilets to report uh, on stories uh, from uh, London uh, you're uh, suggesting that RTE should look at its regional services and invest in studios in Dundalk and in Athlone that's right I mean this is this is the issue I have uh, with these, these ridiculous increases, this 10% hike in the salary. I mean, they have to be reversed. That's the first thing I have to say. And, you know, quite frankly, Michael, that, that, that other issue, that other elephant in the room, the €150,000 payment on a contract to Ryan Tuberty for services which were not actually delivered, that has to come back. I mean, as far as I can tell, that money has to be returned. And I'll tell you why. Because as we speak, the Northeast and Midlands studio services for RT are still running uh, below below par. We have no camera crew fully assigned to the RT studios in Dundalk to cover all of Louth, all of Mead, all of Monaghan and all of Cavan. And it's just not acceptable. Why should the people involved in paying their licence in Louth and Mead uh, be expected to put up with a second-rate service? And I mean a second-rate in the context that if there's an incident or an event which mm. has to be covered, there'll be an RT news or even on Nationwide. There is no facility, no assigned crew facility fixed in the region there, because RTE told us they couldn't afford it. Right. Now, at the same time, uh, as we found out since, it turns out that they had, they, they had lots of things going on that shouldn't have been going on. Right. Uh, uh, how do they manage to report on it? Uh, hello? No. Hello, can you hear me, Kieran? Sorry, Michael, lost you there for a second. Yeah. Go ahead. Again. <laughs> okay. I thought we lost you there altogether. Uh, thanks. Um, I was just asking, how do uh, the crews manage to report? Uh, you can't do the job if you haven't got the tools to do the job. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, I can I can talk to you firsthand about this because I did it myself for a period of years. After our camera person retired in the Midlands, we had to go ahead without a crew. So what happens is as follows. You have a situation whereby there may be a serious accident on the M1 down to Dublin. Uh, going through the county, there may be a fire or, or probably against the night. You get a telephone call. The correspondent, like myself, will get in Dundalk there on the campus of the of the of the, the IT in, in Dundalk, and you would basically be told, you know, we need we need a crew now. You'd start a process of trying to find one. So you ring RT news uh, news desk in Donnybrook. Uh, you start pleading and begging uh, for a facility, and they would basically look at the resources available to them, and they would decide if there's a crew available in Belfast, which, as you know, is quite a bit up the road or whether there's a crew available in, in Dublin from within the resources. Mm. And you, most of the time, the answer was, we're up to our neck in Dublin, we're already on, on fewer crews, camera crews, and you're going to have to wait, Karen. Are you going to have to wait, right. uh, Sinead Hussey? Are you going to have to wait, 
uh, to, to whoever was involved in the Northeast at that particular time, the correspondent right. there. Yeah, and, and that means sitting around... That's an awful situation for you to be put in uh, uh, for Sinead Hussey uh, or Laura Hogan, uh, all fine reporters, uh, and asked to deliver a, a yellow pack service to the people listening to us today uh, who will be none too pleased, and many of them say that RTE doesn't see much further than Newlands Cross. No, and, 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 and this, this feeds into this situation and there's no defense for this it's not acceptable for somebody to say that we have resources and they will they will eventually arrive that why should the people of the northeast be secondhand uh, 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 treated in this situation it is unfair it doesn't allow the person to do the, do the job right mm. and as i say it's not just about the salaries that you know kevin backhurst is in there now and they're going to have to restructure the organization it's also about the 150,000 euro which rte paid to ryan tuberty's agent mm. uh, i'm not i'm not letting this go uh, I'm not, I don't care what contract is in place, Michael. Uh, the service provided wasn't, wasn't provided. Right. Ryan Tuberty has admitted this. Can you think of any reason why anybody listening to us this morning would pay €160 Euro for a, a television licence to fund Noel Kelly, to fund Ryan Turbody, to fund the coverage of stories in Dublin or an RTE orchestra or whatever it is, or for that matter, through their taxes to help bail out this organisation to the tune of €55 million? Euro? Well, my answer to that question is no. Uh, under the present system with the television licence fee, I think there are no circumstances under which I pay it myself anymore. My suggestion going forward is as follows, Michael. I, my suggestion is that RTE News, Current Affairs and Sport would be covered by the licence fee in future, in future and news coverage uh, and current affairs coverage on local radio would be supported by a, a licence fee in future. I think the day has gone when people in Louth and Mead sitting at home are going to be expected to fork out so that we can have a a light entertainment show on a Friday night or a a particular type of event, which I would consider not to be mainstream state broadcasting. Uh, And, you know, it might be difficult for people to listen to this in in Donnybrook, but I think there is considerable confidence and trust in RTE News and Current Affairs. Uh, That's my opinion. It's also backed up by surveys over the course of the last 10 years. I think that's the service that can be supported by the licence fee. That's why you should pay your licence fee for quality news, current affairs and sport. And as I say, I am also of the opinion that a significant share of that should go to stations like LMFM who provide key public service broadcasting, not only at times of elections, but on the day-to-day, week-to-week front and information the public needs. Okay. Well, it's hard to believe uh, that the News and Current Affairs Service from RTE is a world-class service, given <laughs> what you've told us this morning about trying to get camera crews uh, or uh, the difficulties uh, involved in trying to persuade uh, those in authority that you need the tools to do the job. Kieran, I've run out of time. Apologies for that, but thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. We'll be hearing much more about this next week when the Oireachtas Committees get back into action and start scrutinising what's going on in Donnybrook but thanks this morning to Thank you very much Mike Thank you Kira Malouli former RTE Midlands correspondent Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Good morning, Tim Cullinan, President of the Irish Farmers Association, and thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, I, want, I want to talk to you about uh, the derogation being changed on the nitrates uh, directive. But can I ask you a couple of questions about the politics surrounding this over the last 24 hours to begin with? Uh, I think we all saw Pat McCormick of uh, the ICMSA being heckled on his way into meet the Minister meeting which uh, your members had boycotted. Was that wrong to heckle him? I mean, it wasn't as if he was breaking a picket or something. 
Yeah, well, look, um, I suppose my, my job is to, is to continue with you know, a campaign we're on here, you know, particularly around, there's a number of key issues that we're very concerned around at the moment. And look, I don't like seeing anybody being heckled and you know, it's, it's just hard to control crowds. But look, the key, I think, you know, the key fundamental issues here is you know, what the minister has been not doing more mm. than doing. And if you look at it first, the first one is the the, the delay in, in the payments this year. The ANC delayed by one month and the BIS, which is new uh, single pay, farm payment that farmers were used to in the past, is being delayed for anything up to two weeks this year as well. Mm. And we've been highlighting this to the Minister for quite some time. And obviously, right then on the nitrates derogation, I suppose, like, to put this simply to, to your listeners there, mm. what this would mean is for a farmer with 60 or 70 cows, it could mean having 15 less cows yeah. in output. That could be anything between 30 to 40,000 euros per year. It's 10 but to 15 percent less, isn't it, uh, to comply yes, with exactly. climate change? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, is it not better to try and negotiate inside the room instead of outside the room where you chose to be yesterday? Yeah, and uh, for the background to this is I've been president of IFA now for in excess of three and a half years. And we've always tried to work with the department, with the, with the minister and all his officials in there. But look, there comes a time when uh, we've been explaining this, putting very, very credible proposals around why we should be able to maintain the derogation put forward. And we, we just wouldn't listen to. And I suppose really what really frustrated me and our members was like uh, what the minister he was uh, supposed to be having a meeting with a senior commissioner in Brussels dealing with this, the, the man that would have the decision to make whether um, the EU Commission would reopen negotiations on this particular topic or not. And all we had was a, a video call on Monday evening. Mm. And um, following on from that, then, the minister made a decision himself, made an announcement without any consultation with any of the key stakeholders. But presumably he was told in that video call that you're not going any further with this and I'd have thought that the minister would have uh, represented uh, farmers and made the points uh, that you've been making in relation to this, as you say, you've communicated over long periods of time that we heard Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey make earlier on in the programme about uh, how farmers are protecting uh, water uh, in the way that they're farming the land. Do you not believe that to be the case? Do you think that the Minister has let farmers down? Sure, I I do, to be honest with you, because farmers... Um, have adopted no less than 30 measures since 2018 and um, are working through a process here. Ourselves in IFA, we we contracted the service of a hydrologist uh, to to look at the methodology, how the EPA is is doing water uh, monitoring and all of this over, over the last number of years as well. And you see, what we need here is you have to look at the trend in the longer term more than the short term and We've been consistently making the point, so if you change something today, you're not going to see an automatic uh, result tomorrow. Mm. And we've seen similar in the emissions when we were all told that farmers would not be able to reduce emissions, which case in point now already we're reducing 19 of the 25. Or we can prove at the moment that uh, we are reducing emissions from bovines 
up to 19% currently. Mm. And, you know, with the science, the way it's it's moving in the right direction, we can achieve our 25% by 2030. Okay, but, similarly, the, the, the commission yeah, is, but similarly with the water, Michael. Mm, but the Commission is worried about the quality of the water. The results haven't been good in certain areas, and that's why they're bringing this change forward from the 1st of January 2026 to some areas, is it not? Yeah, yeah, and... and the, the reason the Commission are concerned is because you know DPA are monitoring uh, one year, you know, one year against another. So what I'm saying here is you need a longer trend, and it is going to take time for all this to happen. And if you look at it last year, Michael, farmers used 14% less inorganic fertilizer. My understanding is there's a similar reduction again on top of that 14% for the current year. So obviously that is going to have a serious. Uh, uh, a positive impact on water quality going forward. Uh, farmers are using are making far better use of organic fertilizer than in the past, and mm. again, that will have a huge benefit to water quality going forward. And these well. are the arguments. And I'm sorry to cut across you. It's just that the clock is getting the better of us. These are the arguments you say the minister should have been making on be- on behalf of the farmers, uh, and you feel he didn't make them or, or didn't make them robustly enough. He's lost the argument one way or another and as a result of that you believe the Minister has failed farmers. They're lining up in Fine Gael to say the same thing. Uh, do you think that's odd uh, given that uh, we're talking about a, a party that's in coalition with the same party as the Minister? Yeah, I suppose, look, um, you know, to put this in context what this means like there's 170,000 people involved in the Irish agriculture sector uh, right around this country, outside of farmers. The amount of people that's implied, not direct farmers themselves. It's a serious, serious industry for rural Ireland. And I've made this point, probably made the point on your own from the past, Michael. The FDIs and the makes massive profits here in this, in this country, but most all of those profits are repatriated to their own countries, where in Ireland... The money that farmers are making is a tri- trickle-down in effect in the rural economies. And you know, are we going to allow um, all of this to destroy this sector when we know if we get an opportunity and time for everything right, we can achieve that and do it right? So I think that's why the minister should have been in Brussels, should have made clear, precise points to the commissioner to ensure that we can maintain this sector in Ireland. Okay, Tim, I've run out of time. I have to leave there. Thank you very much indeed, though, for joining us. That's all. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure. Tim Cullinan, President of uh, the Irish Farmers Association. That's our programme for uh, this week. Thanks to Maggie McGuire, who researched Paul McKenna in uh, the Control Tower. I'm Michael. Uh, Make sure you have sun cream on. Be careful in the water, but have a lovely weekend. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.